our sermon text this evening will be Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I texted Michael last week saying, hey, what is your sermon going to be about next Sunday? Oh, Romans 12. Oh, do I, need to, uh, do I need to change anything? No, you're good. Okay. Sounds good, Michael. So hear now the reading of God's word for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect and holy word. We pray now that you would send your spirit so that your word may move in our hearts and in our minds to transform our minds to make us more into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2021. It has been quite a year. I think it's interesting because at least for me, heading into 2021, there's a sense of optimism in the air. COVID's been a thing. It's been a full year, but there's new year and hopefully COVID will be gone soon and we'll be back to normal. And then now after another whole year, I think it's fair to say that at the end of the day, we're all just kind of exhausted at this point. So looking at Romans 12 this evening as we look forward to the end of this year and the start of a new one, just want this evening to be an encouragement to keep pressing on, to keep going on in the faith. We start by looking at these first two phrases at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. As Michael mentioned earlier today, this, these phrases mark an important turn in the book of Romans. So far up to this point, Paul has been mainly concerned with doctrines, the teachings of the church that he refers to in this verse as the mercies of God. He starts in chapters 1 through 3 by explaining to us sin and how Jew and Gentile are both under sin. In chapters 4 through 11, Paul continues by saying that deliverance has come through Jesus Christ. And he ends chapter 11 with a beautiful benediction and doxology, exclaiming the excellencies and the infiniteness of our Lord. And this would have been a more than fitting ending to what's already probably the greatest letter ever written. But as we can see, Paul doesn't end there. He does not end on that note. In chapter 12, he turns the discussion to what we are to do in light of God's mercies that he has shown to us. He starts in a fitting place by teaching us and applying the mercies of God to us or to us in how we relate to our God. But before we get into that, before we go into how to apply God's mercy to our relationship with God, it's important that it is on the basis of the doctrine that he has just laid out that he's able to make this appeal to the Romans. Because we were dead in our sin, because we have been saved through Christ, therefore 
you are to live in this way as a result of God's mercies. What Paul is teaching us here is that Christianity is not meant to be a religion that solely operates on the theoretical level. It is not meant to be a religion solely concerned with the mind. We are not saved by having all the right doctrines. Granted, there are a few important ones, the Trinity, the of Christ, all that good stuff. But we do not have to have every single possible doctrine exactly 100% right in order to get into heaven. No, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which is a mercy in and of itself. Can you imagine how stressful it would be if you had to get every single doctrine 100% right to get into heaven? I mean, there would probably be a lot more people in Greek and Hebrew classes in seminary, that's for sure. And that is a mercy for any of you who do not have to go through that. Just think of all the debates that the book of Revelations would cause, even more than it already does. No, we are saved by faith. And this faith is supposed to be united with actions. Our theology is always meant to lead us into worship. James tell us, tells us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. That saving faith is always accompanied by works. Jesus said that good trees always produce good fruit, and that if we love him, then we will keep his commandments. We should not be content with just building up a head knowledge of Christ. And Paul's example for us here is a great reminder of this fact. Theology and doctrine are important, and they are great, But our knowledge of the gospel always leads to action. Everything we do in our life should be driven by the knowledge that we are saved in Christ Jesus and are united with him. Imagine someone reading every possible book ever written about changing a tire. They have watched every YouTube video ever made about changing a tires. They have known everything about changing tires that has ever been recorded in human history. Yet, all that knowledge is not good if one day they get a flat tire and they don't put that knowledge into practice. Unless they are able to use that knowledge, they're not going to get very far. So it is with the gospel. Our growth and grace will be hindered if we do not live out the faith that we have been given. But, in light of all that has gone on in this church... We have plenty of examples of what it is like to see the beauties of a church that lives out its faith. This building example, it is absolutely an example of the provision and the mercies of God. But it's also the result of the saints of this church laboring for years and praying for years. Michael mentioned earlier that his recovery is a direct result of God's mercies. But... It is also a result of the prayers of the saints that lifted him before the throne room of grace. Think about how many people have started coming to this church since COVID started. When most churches were struggling, this church grew. Yes, that is again a sign of the Lord's great mercies to us. But it's also the result of faithful saints in this church laboring and praying. When the Lord builds the house, the laborers do not labor in vain. So let us continue to live out our faith in light of great mercies God has shown us.
Going back to our text, though, this final half of the book of Romans from 12, chapters 12 to 15 can be separated into practical application towards specific categories. But as we mentioned before, these first two verses are directly applicable to how we are to apply the truths of, of the gospel in our relationship with God. And it's fitting that Paul would start there, seeing that our relationship God is probably the most important thing on this world, in this planet. It's not probably, it is. Our relationship with God is more important than anything. So what does Paul say to us? He says that we should present our bodies as a sacrifice. Now, he does not mean that we should be lining up like the Old Testament sacrifices and be ready to present our bodies in that manner. He does say in Romans 8 that we are counted as sheep to the slaughter, but not necessarily in that way. Instead, he is referring to offering up our lives to God. We are to bring everything we have, the totality of our being, to God as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving in light of the mercies that he has shown us. There are three qualifiers, though, that he attaches this to help us understand what he means when he says that we are to offer up our bodies as a sacrifice. He says that it is to be a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, and a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. The first thing to know is that we are to present our lives as a living sacrifice. In order to be in a relationship with God, in order to bring praise to God, we have to be made alive by the Spirit. Before we were dead in our sins, we had no hope, we had no knowledge of God, we had no knowledge of sins. But we have been brought over from death to life. The corruptions of our souls are gone, and we have a new life in Christ Jesus. Because we have been given a new life, we are to offer it up to the Lord. The second thing to note is that our body is to be a holy sacrifice. Think of the, OT, uh, the, sorry, the Old Testament. Lesson to not read straight off the manuscript right there. <laughs> Think of the Old Testament when it talks about sacrifices. They are supposed to be without blemish. Even now, as we offer up our sacrifices, they are to be without blemish. Which immediately presents a major problem to us. Because, well, we are not without blemish. At least I know I'm not. We are imperfect beings that are trying to praise a perfect God. Nothing holy, unholy, can be within his presence. We should not forget, though, that though we are not perfect, though we struggle with sin, we are still called saints. We are still called holy ones. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Though we may not be perfect, we, are still, we still have the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives that still allows us to bring our songs, our prayers, our praises, and our works before God. The last qualifier is that they are to be well-pleasing to God. We are to offer sacrifices that glorify him. Though nothing we do is perfect, when we present our lives to God in worship, he looks upon them through his son and is well pleased to accept them. 
as we read in Hebrews, these sacrifices are actually pleasing to God. By doing this, by presenting our bodies to the Lord as a living, holy, and well-pleasing sacrifice, we are actually bringing our spiritual worship before the Lord. As mentioned above, this worship requires all of our being. He's not just referring to worship on Sundays here. No, he is referring to a worship that never ceases. God in his salvation is eternal and everlasting. Therefore, our worship should be eternal and everlasting. God did not save us just so that we could come and worship him on Sundays. No, this worship is one that occurs throughout the week. He saved us so that all that we do is worship. The way we shop for groceries should be an act of worship. The way we relate to our friends and family should be an act of worship. The way we deal with hardships should be an act of worship. There are no spiritually neutral actions. Everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say is either honoring to God or is dishonoring to God. So in light of that, let us live in a way that our worship is well-pleasing to God, to the God of our salvation. There is one more thing that I want us to note here in verse 1. Looking at verse 1, we should note that it says to present our bodies as a sacrifice. The bodies is plural, yet there is only one sacrifice that is being offered. And naturally, the way we probably read this is that we break up the sacrifice into I bring a sacrifice, you bring a sacrifice, he, she brings a sacrifice. And that is true. But also contained in this verse is the sense that we as a church, as a body, are to present our bodies as a singular sacrifice of praise. Looking down at verse 5, we see that though we are many, we are one body in Christ Jesus. Though there are many of us, we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is a communal aspect here that we should not miss. We as the body should be helping each other live in light of the truths of the gospel. We should be building one another up so that we could grow in grace and grow in holiness together. Christianity is a religion not solely based on gaining knowledge as we looked at before, but it is also not a religion to be practiced alone. We have, been all, we have all been saved by God's mercy. We have all been saved by God's grace. We have been united with Christ Jesus and are one in Him. So let us seek to present our bodies as a sacrifice as individuals, but also as the church. For we are one in Christ Jesus and members one of another. Let us together present our bodies as a sacrifice of praise to God for the wonderful works he has done in this church and is doing in this church. Evidence of his mercy is all around us and his evidence of his goodness is all around us. Let us continue to praise and worship the God of our salvation.
So in verse 1, Paul has told us the goal. He has told us what we are to aim for. The goal is to present our bodies as a sacrifice of praise to God. In verse 2, Paul tells us what we are to do in order to reach that goal. He does not leave us hanging. He actually gives us instructions. More more specifically, in verse 2, he tells us two things. We should not be conformed, and we should be transformed. I think it's interesting how Paul uses these two verbs here to contrast one another. Thinking of conformed, I generally think of, some, of molding something or shaping something that is already there. Because of our flesh, there is still remaining corruption of sin within us. Paul is warning us not to let that sin that is there to shape our lives. We should be killing the sin within us, which happens when we are transformed by the Spirit. This is something outside of ourselves. It is not something we have the ability to do in and of ourselves. So let us take a minute to dive into both of these concepts individually. First, Paul's warn us, Paul warns us not to be conformed to this world, this present evil age, as he calls it in other places. Since knowing is half the battle, we must know who our enemies are, the ones that will try to seek to conform us to this world. There is always the world itself, this present evil age. It will always try to win us over to sin and conform us. There is the remaining corruption within our own flesh that works against us. And there is the devil and his minions who are against us, for we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. These are the three things that are always at war with us and will always try to conform us to the sin of the world around us. And when you think about it, there are really two primary ways that the world tries to get us. The first is that it tries to lure us into its ways. It's like those sweet little old ladies at grocery store who are offering you free samples as you go about your business. You're going about your business, you're shopping, and you happen to go by their stand, and they offer you a free sample. You take it, and naturally, it is absolutely delicious, and you want more. So you go about your shopping till you just happen to go by their station again, and you grab another one, and you're hooked. You love it. You take the little recipe card that they give you, you go about your business, you buy all the stuff for it so that you can make it at home. This is what the world does. It offers you a small taste of something good, something you like. Money, power, fame, pleasure, whatever you, whatever you can think of, whatever you can, name it, the world will offer it to you. Because the world knows that if it can get you a small taste, if it can get you to bite on the hook, then you'll keep coming back for more, and it has you in its trap. Sin can be a subtle death if we are not aware of it, and if we are not careful. The sinful age that we live in will always present us with temptations we must fight those temptations because if you ever tried to recreate that sample at home and cook it for yourself you know that it's never as good you can never do it how they do it the world will offer you these great things because they know that it will never be good enough they'll only lead to disappointment instead of being conformed to the things of this world that will one day pass away. We should instead lay, for, lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where our Heavenly Father is. 
The second way that the world will try to conform us is much less graceful than the first. The second is when the world is like a hammer and anvil, and we just happen to be the poor piece of metal stuck between the two. There is no subtlety about it. The world will just beat you down until you give in and conform to it. It's going to hammer away at you until you can no longer resist. And the the worst part about it, that it's never just one or the other. There will always be a sense of both. One will just happen to be more prevalent at any given moment. I think looking at the last year or so that we can agree here at Christ Ridge, we've been getting the hammer more than the free sample as of late. The world, the flesh, the devil, it seems as though it's been throwing a few haymakers at us trying to get us, trying to beat us down. Keep up the fight. Do not give in to the world. Do not give in to the flesh. Do not give in to the devil. At the same time, we must be watchful for those subtle sins that can grab hold of us as well. We must be watchful of our hearts. And though this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil can be tiring, we must keep going, knowing that we have hope in the gospel. We have hope because we are being transformed by the renewal of our minds. As we looked at before, there are no spiritually neutral actions. We are either being conformed or we are being transformed by the Spirit. And I find this statement by Paul here to be absolutely fascinating. Because he is commanding us to do something that we are passive in. It happened to us. The transforming we experience is nothing to do in and of ourselves. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit who is working in our hearts and in our minds that is doing the renewing. While the world, the flesh, and the devil are appealing to our sin nature... The Spirit is within us, killing the sin that remains. The Spirit is making us more and more holy. It is making us more and more like Christ, so that we can do the good works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. But more importantly, within the context of this passage, the Spirit is renewing our minds so that we may discern the will of God. That by testing, we may discern the will of God. Putting it another way, the Spirit's renewal of our mind allows us to understand God's revealed will for us in His Word, by which we can understand what is good and acceptable and perfect. Which almost seems to go against what we said at the beginning when we talked about how knowledge is not the end goal. But it actually complements it rather well. Because Paul understands that what we believe, what we know, what we think, what our feelings are, how we see the world, all this flows out in our deeds and in our actions, allowing us to then present our bodies as a living, well-pleasing, and holy sacrifice to God. This battle against sin is, can be exhausting, but do not give in. Do not let the sin lure you, do not let sin lure you in with false promises. Do not give in when sin tries to beat you down. Instead, trust 
the workings of the Spirit. Be transformed by the Spirit as it renews your mind. In light of all this, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to keep walking in the Spirit and keep fighting against the the flesh, the world, the devil. Because it is the Spirit that is in our hearts, renewing our minds, that we are able to understand the revealed will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is only by the Spirit that we are then able to do good works and present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It is not easy, and we are going to fail. But we must keep going. We must keep pressing forward, knowing that we have the body of Christ able to help us and support us, but also to join us and come alongside us in worship. Because we have a great and mighty Lord. Always remembering that our goal is not our glory or our knowledge, but knowing that our chief end, as the catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that we are being transformed by your spirit and that you are renewing our minds, that though our bodies waste away, we are being renewed day by day and that one day there is waiting for us a weight of glory beyond all of our comprehension. We thank you for your work in us and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.